0: The Foundation for Ancient Research and Mormon Studies presents The Pearl of Great Price Lecture Series, given by Dr. Hugh Nibley. Today's lecture is entitled, Enoch. We're on Book of Enoch, and we have to go like crazy. Uh, We're not going. To, we're just going to go through without drawing the comparisons with the documents. We mentioned them before. Almost every point we mention is recalled in the newly discovered documents. So we'll begin with Moses, six and twenty-two, where we learn that visions and visitations are rare. Um, Adam conversed with God himself, but he was rare. Notice those who followed him. No, they were preachers of righteousness. That's what happened. So the visitations don't happen to everybody. Joseph Smith, since then, nobody has had anything like that, and nobody's supposed to. You notice the next verse, there were preachers of righteousness, and they called upon all everywhere to repent and have faith. And they teach, what Did they teach here? Faith, repentance, and baptism. The same old gospel way back in the days of Enoch. And Enoch is one of them, and he's the prize, as a matter of fact. And he goes about, like the rest, preaching, and, uh, It came to pass that Enoch journeyed in the land. He was sixty-five years old and begat Methuselah. And uh, he journeyed in the land among the people, and while he was journeying, he received his call. He's going to have a special call. He is going to be the number one missionary. He heard the voice from heaven saying, Tell these people to repent. My fierce anger is kindling against them. Now this is a typical prophetic calling too, isn't it? it? It reads like any of the major or minor prophets. I am angry with this people, my fierce anger is kindled against them, their hearts have waxed hard, their ears are dull of hearing, their eyes cannot see afar off. The theme is apocalyptic in all of these. You realize up until the 1930s the word eschatology isn't even found in the dictionary, they didn't believe there was any eschatology in the Bible. Then up until 1960 they didn't realize, they denied that there was any apocalyptic writing at all in the Bible. Amazing. Then suddenly they discovered the whole thing is apocalyptic. Now all our scriptures here are apocalyptic, that means they're Revealed, but they're brought forth by times of pressure and crisis, and they always come on the eve of great destructions. That's why they're given to us. Read the first section of the Doctrine and Covenants. Hearken ye people of the earth, and so forth. Therefore ye people fear and tremble. That's the theme of the seventh verse there of the first chapter. Therefore fear and tremble, O ye people. This is the message, because these things always come when they're badly needed, when the world has been going the wrong way for a long time and it's time to set things right again, but it's always accompanied by violent upheavals of nature and <coughs> world upheavals, political, international, and everything else. We're going to get a lot of that here. We see it in the days of Adam. We, now we see it in the days of Enoch. And this gets quite, quite lively. You notice here the fierce anger is kindled. The, um, what we have here is, I'm going to see here, from, uh, from 27 following, I just uh, noted some things here. Nobody able to do it more rapidly, and uh, the difference is that people are following their system. He says they're not following the system I gave them. I gave them a plan. I gave them instructions. They pay no attention to it. They think they knew it no better, and they're doing it their way. Now this is the constant theme in all this Enoch literature we put on the board the last time. That's what they. That's one of the great crimes. The the classic theme that comes in here, it usually comes a little later, but, uh, is the Watchers. You see, when they had this crash program that begins here with the, um, Satan had great dominion and so forth, and uh, the gospel began to be preached, holy angels sent forth from the presence of God and by his own voice and the gift of the Holy Ghost and his prophets. This crash program, they sent down angels to preach and put the people right. Now this is a tradition that you find spread everywhere including in non-Jewish sources, at a very early time. These were the, ro- the watchers, the Egregoroi. They came, over, came down to observe and then go back and report as to how things were going. They came down to instruct the human race and put them back on the plan of the Gospel again. But many of them, 200 of them according to tradition, uh, fell away, were tempted by the daughters of men, joined with them, and sinned terribly. And these were the terrible watchers. They knew too much, and they, that made them very dangerous. And they're responsible for a lot of trouble here, are the watchers. You're going to run into them all, all the time. We're told that they came down on the top of Mount Hermon, Mount Hermon, the highest mountain in, in Palestine. And uh, that's the uh, Mount Hermon, which means the mountain of the oath. Two hundred of them came down there and took their oaths and covenants. And and, and, uh, and what they did, they gave away the rights of the temple, but they perverted them. The whole thing is, is a right of perversion. They had all the same things, but they perverted them and claimed that they were being holy, that they had the priesthood, that they had the covenants, and this was their great crime, of course, that they perverted the real thing. Fortunately, we're told they didn't have enough knowledge. Their knowledge was limited, so they weren't able to destroy everything. They knew not the mind of God, as we're told in this book. So this, uh, their system was not the system I gave Adam. Notice the, uh, this is typical. I mean, you'll find this in many verses in this, this old Enoch stuff we mentioned, this 28th verse here. They have sought their own counsels in the dark. In their own abominations they have devised murder. They have not kept the commandments which I gave to their father Adam. See, Adam gave it. Remember, Cain said, don't, he did all this. He kept it secret so that Adam wouldn't find out that he was copying and corrupting the whole thing. So here it comes out again. They did not keep the commandments I gave Adam, but they put their own version, their own counsel, and divide their own abominations and murders. Wherefore, they have forsworn themselves, they have the oaths and so forth, and by the oaths in 529 read about the oaths they made to each other and so forth Satan swore me by the oath and tell it thou shalt die and so forth By their oaths they have forsworn themselves. They were false oaths They have brought upon themselves death and a hell have I prepared for them if they repent not and this is a decree which has gone out of my own mouth and Enoch is called to go out and announce this gloomy message, and he doesn't want to he's scared stiff. He says I am um, slow of speech I'm but a lad and all the people hate me not a very good candidate for the mission field, you see. <laughs> Why does he call himself a lad? This is a striking thing. It says when he was 62 years old, he begot, of uh, 65, he begot Methuselah. This was the time he got his call. And this is a very interesting thing. In these early documents, he's, he's always called the Nair, which means the lad. And this got, uh, the doctors of the Jews speculated uh, way back in the early time in the, in the mission. And uh, was it because he was younger, uh, than the people he went to preach to, or in terms of age of his time. After all, if he begot Methuselah, he was supposed suppose to live 963 years, uh, then he was indeed a lad at the age of 65. But various explanations, but nobody knows why. The interesting thing is that Joseph Smith has caught it here. It has only emerged not long ago that the stock name that was given to Enoch anciently, his mystery name was the lad, the Nar. Why? We don't know. That's not in the Bible. You won't find it there. Or any. Normal Jewish writings as far as that goes. So there is the lad here. And what's he going to do? Filling his mouth. The Lord will say, well, I'll I'll give you exactly what you're supposed to say. Filling his mouth, that is the common theme too. He actually puts the statement in his mouth. See, we have some striking parallels here which we're not going into. (coughs) And uh, Enoch is to place the two ways before the people, of course, in the 33rd verse here. Uh, I've commanded thee, no man shall pierce thee. (coughs) You won't be he thought that he wouldn't last very long, and he wouldn't if the Lord didn't protect him. Open thy mouth, and it shall be filled, and I will give letters. I will do as seemeth me good. I will be in charge, and I will take over the whole thing. So just trust me and do what you're told. Say unto this people, Choose ye this day whom you will serve. He uh, places the two ways before them, and he does this again. Remember, we have two ways. This is the doctrine of the early church, and so forth. And we don't find much. After the. Third century, you don't have the doctrine. The two ways are the, the two ways the ways of dark and light, the way of righteousness and wickedness, namely our party versus your party. That's all it is. If you belong to a particular faction, then you are in the way of light. If you belong to the other one, then you are in the way of darkness. Well, of course, that isn't the way it is at all. Every day, every moment of the day, everyone has to make that choice. That is why we're here being tested. And uh, the choice you make will determine what you will be hereafter and so forth. But. There's always, no matter how far you've gone, no matter how many wrong choices you've made, there's always the best choice, there's always the better choice. So the doctrine of the two ways, and it is very ancient. And you can't compromise on them. This is the interesting thing. We try to do that today. But uh, as Heraclitus said long ago, the first, something the greatest of the Greek philosophers, was odos ano kato mia. The up road and the down road are the same road. The only difference is you're facing the opposite direction. That's why you can't compromise. It's the same road. It depends on which direction you're facing. That's the road you were on, and we're all on the same road, and you're going either up or down. I think we mentioned that before. Well, now, nature behaves here as in the Exodus. All these great crises I mentioned before, all the great scriptures could come in these times of crisis, and the natural upheavals go along with it. There's a long period of bad times, and there have been such bad times. Uh, It's it's a very important thing to note. Uh, You could recommend something like Claude Schaefer. A uh, Frenchman who got together a huge manual, thousands of pages, in which he compares all the, all the uh, archaeological work in, in the, the Near East and Europe up until, well, of course, it, it was to the 1940s, around 1947. But those periods still stand, and there's a brand new work out by Schutz, uh, Helmut Schu- uh, uh, Herbert Schutz, uh, just co- uh, covering the European area, and the same things emerge. At a particular time, all hell breaks loose and the whole world is uprooted. Everybody, everybody gets hit. There's no security anywhere for anybody. That happened around 3000, it happened around uh, 2200, it happened again 1700 BC, it happened uh, in the 8th century, 7th and 8th century BC, the Great Migration. that happened with the barbarian invasion, the fall of the Roman Empire in the 5th century AD, and so it goes in the year 1000 AD, uh, that terrible time. But From time to time, we mentioned, of course, meteorites may be responsible for it. There is the iridium layer. There's that break, 35,000 B.C., when you come with a a totally new humanity. Everything else changes. But uh, these things do take place. That's what I want to point out. It it isn't a a steady, gradual evolution. That was the uh, Victorian obsession. You see, that everything had to be slow, safe, comfortable, easy, by minute variations, imperceptibly, the race irresistibly improved. And that's not the way it's been at all. Sometimes these crashes, they go back, they go back, collapse completely, and have to start climbing all over again. This has happened numbers of times when they lost far greater civilizations than they were able to get back again for at least a thousand years. So, but he's going to be active in this, and these are miracles. Wherefore thy words I will justify. The mountains shall flee before him, and the rivers shall turn from their course again, as they did for Moses. And again, it's a matter of timing. The Lord knows those things are going to happen, and the situation is properly set up. And of course it happens that way. There's nothing unnatural about it. The, uh, and the Lord spake unto, Enoch, now we see here that we have He is a seer. He saw out of this very, see, we're in a closed, confined situation and, and system. We don't see very much. We are closed on all sides. We're very much aware of that. We're getting less aware of that. You, there's a lot of documentaries on TV and so forth showing breakouts in all directions now where people are discover what, has, to use Moses' language, which thing I never had supposed. I mean these visits to, uh, to the satellites of the various planets. Absolutely staggering. Nobody dreamed there'd be anything uh, discovered in Uranus. They discovered more that one unmanned spacecraft, uh, on the same day that of the, 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 uh, the tragic blow-up of the Challenger on the same day, it discovered more information than all the other 25 man- manned space flights put together had ever discovered. What do they do? They just fly around the Earth, that's all. They take good pictures of the Earth, but you can do that with unmanned satellite. The Russians go up and dig samples from the moon and bring them back, dig samples from Mars and bring them back, you can do that. You don't have to go out and go around and, what do you do well, this has nothing to do with this, but... No, but the point is, he looks out and he sees something very different. But it isn't the way we think it is at all. Put clay on your eyes and take a look, he says. Wash them and you will see. And he did so. And he beheld the spirits that God created. He beheld also things which were not visible to the natural eye. So the saying went abroad in the land, a seer hath the Lord raised up unto this people. A seer is a picaa, a visionary man who sees things that other people don't see, which are real. See, that was Lehi. His sons made fun of him, remember? They say, our father is a visionary man because he saw things they couldn't see. Well. That's what a piqueach is, and we get those in the Old Testament very rarely, uh, Elisha and Elijah. And so, uh, he goes out and preaches, and all men are offended because he doesn't bring good news. Remember what the people say to Samuel the Lamanite. Tell us what's right with Zarahemla. Don't tell us what's wrong with Zarahemla. And uh, when Samuel the Lamanite says, a person comes and tells you how wonderful you are, he says, you clothe him in fine apparel, you carry him on his shoulders and say he's the true prophet. And if he tells you your sins, you immediately cry out, to "Kill him! He's a false prophet." And this is the situation here: nobody likes him at all. Notice, standing on the hills and high places, crying with a loud voice and testifying against their works, and all men were offended. This is the uh, nobody liked it. And is very negative record. Why? Because he testified against their works. He didn't support what they were doing. He testified against them. Just too negative for words. And so they tried to put him off by passing him off as a nut here, the 38th verse. (laughs) They came forth to him upon high places, saying to the tent keeper, this is something, you've got to see this, tarry here and keep the tents, notice they're living in the plain, and they go up always to the higher ground where, where he is preaching, where Enoch is moving and preaching, he goes to notice upon the high places, and we'll go up, and behold the seer, for he prophesies, and there's a strange thing in the land, a wild man has come among us. They're not going to take him very seriously. But when they listened in the 39th verse, they stopped laughing. No man laid hands on him. They didn't dare. For fear came on all of them. For he walked with God. Of course, that's the passage in Genesis 5, uh, 6, uh, uh, 2, 3, and 4. See, we're only given just three, four verses in the Bible about Enoch. And that's all. We don't have any book of Enoch in the Bible. And uh, this is one of them, of course. fear. He walked with God. But fear came on them. They didn't touch him. And now this is the story we talked about the last time, the Mahujamahijah story of 4Q Enoch from the Dead Sea Scroll text discovered in 1952. But this on verse 42, we won't repeat that now, but notice he says, I came out of the land of Canaan, the land of my fathers are still righteous there, and that's where I came from, and I'm coming to preach to you, and then he tells them how he happened to get his calling. He told us before that as he was going through the land he received a call. Here he gives his testimony and tells the people how it happened, the 42nd verse. As I journeyed from the land Canaan, by the sea east I beheld a vision. Now, we have three or four early uh, uh, Enoch texts that tell you the Giza text is the best. And he says, as I journeyed by the sea east, I was going upon the hills, and I fell asleep, and I received a vision. The the same story he tells there. They even bother to mention that it was by the sea east. One of them says by the sea west. So we say, well, that's a lot of nonsense. Uh, But remember, if these things were word for word perfect, you could be very suspicious of it. Now, these documents are handed around for hundreds and hundreds of years and are copied and are full of mistakes. The fact that so much is held together is really quite remarkable how well these things have been uh, transferred anyway. But they certainly confirm Joseph Smith here, and this this from the Giza fragment, by the sea east I beheld he vision. He sees the, he- the heavens open, and he saw the Lord, and the Lord spoke to him and commanded him. And that's why I'm preaching to you now, he says. This is the call referred to uh, just before. And then, Enoch um, continued his speech. And this is his, why don't you listen to God? Why do you counsel among yourselves, he says here. Now this is it, you see. As the scripture says, how can they believe who receive honor from one another? If we form a committee, if we get our strength from each other, if we support each other and, and form a society, a committee, a very impressive order or a group. Uh, Then we think we're getting something accomplished in doing something, uh, simply by counseling among ourselves. No, you get your counsel directly from the Lord. You do not have to go through channels. This is the important thing. Therefore thou shalt do all that thou doest in the name of the Son, and thou shalt call upon God in the name of the Son forevermore. And repent and call upon God in the name of the Son forevermore. And here he says, well, why do you counsel yourself? Because a great deal is made in these other writings about the secret societies they formed, how they worked together, how one group would fight another. There were various tongs and factions, all very secret, uh, all making exalted claims, and uh, this sort of thing spread, as it said, spread among all the children of men from, from the days of Lamech. And the, uh, then he says here, past generations have disappeared, it's true, but you are still responsible for the message because we have that book, was the 45th verse, we cannot deny. For well, first of all, we know even Adam, and a book of remembrance was written. Remember, the book that is open 5th Genesis, first chapter, first verse of 5th Genesis there. A book of remembrance we have written among us, and not, aco- not written by the finger of God, but according to the pattern given by the finger of God. God taught men how to write. That's a very interesting thing, though. We get something like the Tartaria alphabet, which goes back 7- 7500 B.C. Maybe they're writing beautiful alphabetic writing there. According to some people, it's uh, That's very interesting. There's a brand new book out on uh, uh by Tom, by the two Tom, Tom and his wife, Alexander Tom, the, the uh, man who's made more study of uh, the megalithic, the prehistoric megalithic monuments of, of Brittany and England than, than anybody else, he's a mathematician and uh, an, uh, an engineer and found out a lot of very interesting things he's, which are now widely accepted, he discovered them. But he says, absolutely certain, they must have had a writing, they must have conveyed because the ideas they conveyed to writing. and He's finding signs but nobody can read it or make it out, but they had writing given to them at any rate. We have this book written according to the pattern given by the finger of God. You have it in your own language, so there's no excuse here. And um, when he read the book to them, now this is a thing we read in, a, in the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls version, in the Qumran Enoch, that when he read the book to them, uh, they were ashamed and couldn't raise their eyes or look at him. They couldn't raise their heads up. Uh, and, or look at Enoch, because they were so overcome by the power of Enoch when he read to them from the book. Here it says, he, when he read from the book, in our own life, as, as Isaac spake forth the words of God, see the text says he was reading the book from, well, he just mentioned the book, and he says you can't deny it here, it is written, the people trembled and could not stand in his presence. Again, see, this matches the, the, Joseph, the uh, Qumran Enoch, the 3rd century BC, Aramaic Enoch, where it says they, they couldn't raise their heads to look at him when he read the book to them. And then he begins to tell them what the situation is. Here's the big problem, Moses 48. He's going to give them, here's the problem, here's the situation. We are here and we're going nowhere and we're faced with death, which means misery and woe for all of us. Our sweetest songs only tell the saddest thoughts. We look before and after and pine for what is not. Our sincerest laughter with some pain is fraught. Our sweetest songs are those that tell the saddest thought. We can never be really happy. There's always that pain, always the thorn there, because we're never sure of where we stand, and it looks pretty bad. We know what ha- we are all go- uh, have to look forward to. And so we live in misery and woe, he says. And if that's our nature, we are finished. I've got to get the book out here. The, uh, because as Nephi tells us, this is a passage very much worth paying attention to. It's the second law of thermodynamics, the, uh, entropy, it goes on, and that's the law. That's the one that's really working, as we're told in Second Nephi, and if nothing was interfering with that, that would be the course of nature, and 9 and 7. Nephi. Wherefore, there must be an infinite atonement, something that can overcome all opposition. He says here, save it should be an infinite atonement if there was any way <laughs> Of breaking that down, if this wasn't all-powerful, if we didn't have the, the key to the, to the whole thing, then what would happen? Corruption could not put on incorruption. See, uh, as we know, um, it's a, the second law is a one-way passage. The heat death, heat always moves from a warmer to a colder body, never, never in the opposite direction. So things are always all running down to, a, to an indiscriminate heap of ash in the end. Everything is going to run down that, and that, that is entropy. Everything is just winding down and stopping. That's the law we cannot escape. And he says, well, that's the law. That is the normal law. Of course, the great mystery today is why we're here at all, if that's the case. It's been going on a long time. But there could corruption could not put on incorruption. Wherefore, the first judgment which came upon man must needs have remained an endless duration. And so this flesh must have laid down to rot. This is the normal course of things, he said. Must have laid down to rot and to crumble in its mother earth to rise no more. See, by the course of nature, and by the laws, by everything else, that is the way things should happen. It is that. We would lie down, rot, crumble, earth, and rise no more. To rise no more takes a bit of doing. But he says, that's been done. That's been taken care of. There ha- that's where the infinite atonement comes in, and something is working against it. And this is a thing that a lot of people point out today, a very puzzling thing. Well, but as it is, we had a nice chance here. Adam fell, and we are made partakers of misery and woe, and... Satan came and plunged us into this sewer of misery. And uh, as it, until we get out of here, we're out of it. I mean, our, All our chances went with that. Behold, Satan hath come among the children of men, and tempted them to worship him. And men have become carnal, and senseless, senseless sensual, and devilish, and are shut out from the presence of God. That is the ultimate exclusion. We're finished. If this hadn't happened, and now comes the good news. Of course, the Gospel, we had that earlier when it was preached to Adam and Eve. God will take you back if. Now, from verses 51 to 68, this is an excerpt and quoted from the Book of Adam. This is another book. See, Joseph Smith has given a major writing excerpts, adequate excerpts for testing from every major dispensation he has given us, but purport to be expert excerpts from the original founder, from the, from the headquarters. And here, in these verses, in this uh, verse 51 to 68, here in six. 51 to 60, this is the book of Adam. And we say we've discovered a lot of Enoch literature. We've discovered even more Adam literature. Remember, Adam was out entirely because his sins brought death into the world and all our woes, and they hated Adam because of his terrible blunders and the like, and he was the great sinner. But it's all changed now, This and people were willing, since they didn't believe anything anymore, to start taking a look at the old Adam literature. And it's as rich as the Enoch literature. It's even richer. It takes us marvelous things about I'm reading it now just for fun, because I got looking into it the other day. I've already read it, but uh, they used to read Tolkien, you know, Tolkien's series, because that was romantic, exciting, far away. This is much better, much more exciting, much more ingenious, much more original. You you should read this stuff, it's great. But anyway, this Adam literature um, has a lot of controls in it. And this 52nd verse here points out the immense gulf between those who shall reach have arrived on the other side either one side of the gulf or the other it's the unbridgeable gulf between them I say the road goes in opposite directions you cannot compromise on it uh, and uh, n- notice this this verse 52 gives you an idea of what's there if you repent and be baptized my only begotten who is full of grace and truth that's where you will be and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost Asking all things in his name, and whatsoever he shall ask, it shall be given This is the state of existence we can't even conceive of now. He says, you're not going to get to it yet. It makes a very interesting, pretty soon it makes a very interesting remark on that. But then Adam, and then uh, Enoch, asks the rational question, well, what's baptism got to do with it? Why do we have to be baptized with water? And the answer is, I've forgiven the cause, now you have to get rid of the effect. And the cause was the fall. Well, it made you dirty. But you have to wash it off now. You, and you have to take advantage of the good, of, in good faith, of the sacrifice that's been made for you. Here's the chance. You have to, it's a very simple thing to do, but you have to do it. Why, must, why is it that man must repent and be baptized? Not because you were damned, but because I've forgiven you, he says. I have forgiven you. I've taken care of the, of the transgression in the Garden of Eden. That's the herb cinder, the primal sin. Uh, We're not responsible for that. Therefore, we're not to blame for our sins and so forth. That's ridiculous. That sin has been forgiven So if you want to go on what you do then is wash off and get started again, and he says here uh, The Son of God has atoned for the original guilt Wherefore the sins of the parents can't be answered on the heads of the children. They're whole from the foundation of the world But when they grow up sin conceived within their hearts None of us avoid it. And so as a result the baptism is a very important thing here and uh, until you repent, you are continuing in sin. See, you, you're you not out of it, and if you don't repent, obviously you haven't repented, you haven't changed, or so you're still sinning. And this is the appeal, the 53rd verse, to accept the atonement. Deny not the gifts. This is the theme the Book of Mormon ends on. It's all given to you. Uh, deny not the gifts. Don't refuse the gifts of God, whatever you do. That's the most foolish thing you can do, and we do it. Why do that? So accept the atonement, deny not the gifts, uh, and you can't escape it. Fifth verse here, sin has a bitter aftertaste. And then a strange thing, in this verse, how does sin teach you to prize the good? Sin teach you to prize the good? Yes, does sickness teach you to prize health? Well, it certainly does. The angels recognize what is good, but they don't really know how to prize it and what is really worth because they've never had a chance. They've never been in, in sin, uh, as uh, Tartullian says. The angels envy man his ability to repent because they don't have to. And uh, this is really something to have that. So they recognize the good, of course they know it, they live in it, but they don't prize it. They, They don't realize its full value unless you know what it's really worth, unless you've sinned and been redeemed. But it isn't for that reason you don't, as John Chrysostom says, you're under obligation to sin as much as you possibly can to give God the greatest possible chance to forgive you. If you don't sin all the way, you have denied God His divine office of forgiveness, and you've curtailed and frustrated His desire to forgive you. So do everything you can and uh, give Him a chance to forgive you. you But this says, no, that isn't the way you have to do it at all. Uh, It's not necessary to plumb the depths. Notice the 56th verse. It is given unto them to know good for evil on sight. You know that. And as the Book of Mormon tells us, 2 Nephi, perfect with a perfect knowledge, you know what's good and bad. You have that reaction. Remember, I will place enmity between thee and the servant. That gut reaction when something is wrong, you know what it is. You can't excuse yourself. Therefore, men are without excuses, as they know. With a perfect knowledge, it's night from day. And all of them do. You don't have to be a member of the church or anything else to know that. And again the gap in the 57th verse. All men must repent, for no unclean thing can dwell therein. Well, there you are, you see. An unclean thing is out. is completely out. Remember. one. Defect—the slightest defect in a structure that's to last for an infinite length of time will destroy it. it can be no matter how trifling it is, if it is to land for, uh, last for thousands of millions of years, that defect will, it will be the fatal defect. So you have to be completely cleaned up if you're going back to the presence of Father. There can't be any any sin or defilement in you. No unclean thing can stand in His presence. Well, you can understand that. That would, in the process of time, that would foul up everything because it's all infectious. Because notice, this is the separation. He says, none of that, no unclean thing can dwell there, or dwell in his presence. For in the language of Adam, man of holiness is his name, the name of the only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, who shall come in the meridian time. He is holy, no unclean thing can possibly enter. This this is the gap again. Now, what advantage do we have in this then? Teach these things to your children. In the 59th verse, there's a very interesting statement there. The advantage in this world, what do you enjoy in this world in that case? Because we are all, until as long as we're here, the way is open to repentance, and we need to repent. Nobody is safe. Uh, even on the other side. Uh, remember, he putteth no trust in his holy ones. His angels he charges with folly, as you read in, in Job. And here, in this world, notice at the bottom of verse 59 here, that ye might be sanctified from all sin and enjoy the words of eternal life in this word. You don't have eternal life here, but you enjoy the words of eternal life. There's no end to my works or my words. And the words put you into the picture. They give us great satisfaction. That's the assurance. That's what we have to work on. The words of eternal life, and hereafter, notice, and eternal life itself in the world to come, even immortal glory. You'll get that when you get there, but you're not going to get it here, so don't expect it. But we do have the words of eternal life here. They've been given to us. Well, uh, then this statement about the blood and the water, which has a rather mystical sound to us, the water is an easy act of obedience. You mentioned that before. Said that by the water you keep the commandment. "I know not, save the Lord has commanded me. That's your sacrifice, that's the water. So you get baptized as an act of obedience. And then, by the uh, the spirit, you are justified, that's the Holy Ghost. That's your state of mind. Of course, if you just go through the motions as uh, as obedient, that's the first necessary step here, and uh, the Spirit gives you the state of mind. Of course, naturally, you enter into it, the understanding, the agreement, without which any act would be utterly meaningless. You're not just being baptized as a bag of sand, you've got to be baptized physically, but then it goes beyond that to the Spirit, where you understand and are aware of what's going on, and the Holy Ghost does that. He brings all things to your mind and all things to your remembrance, and then The last thing is, and by the blood, sanctifies. Now you can't sanctify yourself, but by completely giving up this world, life on this world, which means death, which means suffering death, which means the shedding of blood. Uh, And uh, this is the end of earthly life, and you notice people avoid that and dread that more than anything else. That's why we find substitutes and the like. That's why we find proxies for for the sacrifice, Uh, all through, of course, the Old Testament is that. So the shedding of blood is, where it is your final declaration that you're, you're willing uh, to give up this life uh, for the other, and, and it's an act of faith. Well now the sixty-first verse, get along here, it's the Holy Ghost, 64th verse tells you that, that puts you into the scene, giving you complete awareness of what's going on. It's the comfort of the peaceable things and all these things it describes. And in the sixty-third verse there's a very important statement here. This is the one in which uh, science today emphasizes the interconnectedness of all things. This is the principle that made Egyptian hard to understand, to realize that these things are all interchangeable. There is a wonderful passage in Santiana on this, that uh, we live in the midst, the ancients believe we lived in the midst of a, a great manifold in which everything reflects everything else. And this is a beautiful expression of it, since it's very important to understand the vehicles in which these things are conveyed, And the peculiar language. You notice that these books of Enoch, remember chapter 6 and 7, that's the book of Enoch, separate book. But he's quoting the book of Adam now. This is the book of Adam, and this is part of the book of Adam, incidentally. And it's namely this, that all things have their likeness, everything like everything else. You can represent everything by everything else. And made to bear record, all things are created and made to bear record of me, both things which are temporal and things which are spiritual. You can describe temporal things in spiritual terms and vice versa. Things which are in the heavens and things which are on the earth. The earth is a is a reflection of heaven and heaven a reflection of the earth. We use the language of one to describe what's going on in the other time and again. We regard the temple here, uh, as the ancients always did, as reflecting the heavenly pattern, the pattern on earth. As the uh, as Murnane said in his recent book on the Egyptian temple, the uh, the universe is small. It's an observatory. The temple is in which you take your bearings on the universe. These things are all related, all connected together. Things which are in the heavens above and the earth and things which are in the earth, things which are under the earth, above, but believe All things bear record to me uh, of me." So don't be led astray by particular terms of language that are used and what they're relating to. It all connects up, it all ties up, and it all points back to this one thing. Then um, in the sixty-fourth verse following we get the baptism of Adam. Now the main theme in all these Adam books is a very interesting thing. It's, it's strange. They have long stories to tell about Adam. They go on and on, but the big thing is always the baptism of Adam. Why was Adam baptized? Did you know Adam was baptized? Well, that's what this Adam literature tells us about. That's the main thing. You'll find it in your, in the R.H. Uh, Charles, the big volume, Books of Adam and Eve. Uh, how Adam and Eve get baptized—that's a very important thing. And that's what this is all coming to. You remember, say, so Adam says, "Why do I have to be baptized?" The first steps he takes is baptized, and here is Adam's baptism in 64. He's caught up by the Spirit, and put in the water, laid down in the water. He was baptized, and the Spirit of God descended on him, on the inner man. A voice out of heaven. Are baptized with fire after the order of Him, who is without beginning of days or end of years. Thou art one in the Son, a Son of God, and thus may all become My sons, Son of God. So we begin the next chapter with the theory that as many as believed have become sons of God. Notice the Holy Ghost. Uh, the uh, rather all verse first verse of the next chapter. All who follows Adam's example are sons of God. That's more than a complimentary title. We saw Moses starting out saying. I am a son of God. I am in the similitude of the only begotten. And what's the alternative to being sons of God? Again, lives of quiet desperation. You're going nowhere. Then he goes on to Mount Simeon. That's interesting. Why should it be called Mount Simeon? I'm sure Joseph Smith wouldn't know. Because Simeon means conversation. It means an exchange of ideas. It means auditions. It's shima. And it means a, a, an audition, an, an exchange of ideas, a hearing, attention, A place of preaching therefore, a place of conversation, he goes up onto the mountain. Remember, he's doing all his preaching on high places and people go up to hear him. And here he's on Mount Simeon, which means the place of preaching or the place of exchange, because he talks with God on this mountain face to face, as Moses did on the other mountain. Turn ye and get ye on Mount Simeon. I often wondered, why? Why bother about Mount Simeon? Why give it a name at all? Well, it's obvious what's going to happen, Mount Simeon, because that's where I'm going to meet you. And he went up and stood on the mount, beheld the heavens open when he got there, and was clothed upon with glory in the same way that Moses was, so he could stand in the presence of God, sees him face to face, and he said, Look, and I will show thee the world for the space of many generations. He is now shown his mission field exactly as Moses was shown. And this is ascension literature. There's no common, I mean, a large section of the pyramid text, for example, is taken up with ascension literature where the king before he can preside, well, there's a book by Leo Geo Wittgrin uh, on the subject, before he can take over his throne, must go to heaven and see the field of his labors, which is shown him on a map, and uh, receive his assignment. And so here's Enoch again doing this. I'll show thee the world of space. Now he describes the people of Shum and the people of Canaan. And again you'll notice a very interesting archaic pattern here. The, uh, and you ask the question, now wait a minute, he showed him for the space of many generations. When does this happen between Shum and Canaan? Is it past, is it present, or future? It makes no difference. It's following a pattern. You can't figure out which one it is, but I say it makes no difference here. The vision of Shum and Canaan, well, Shum lives in the valley, we're told, and Canaan is a nomad who lives in tents, and in uh, the, the seventh verse, the nomads overrun the valley in the time, in the immemorial fashion. That's the basis of geopolitics Haushofer's geopolitics, uh, which was taken from Alfred Mackinder's Geopolitics, the basis of geopolitics is the heartland where the nomads periodically see they live on a marginal Marginal subsistence the grass and in the bad years they have to migrate and they go off in all the directions to the to the peripheral Civilizations all the civilizations are peripheral the Chinese the Hindu the Egyptian the European and so forth they're all on the outside this great shield this central shield which is the uh, the heartland, which uh, Alfred McKindler, the Scottish geographer, called the heartland. And from that heartland come the periodic invasions that overrun and destroy the civilizations on the outside. Well, that's a long story. That's a whole course there, you see. We don't go into that, but this is the pattern that's laid down here. The people have shown they live in the valleys, and the people, the nomads, in their tents overrun them and destroy them utterly. And then what do them in the seventh verse? And what do the nomads do after that? What nomads always do, they split up and start fighting each other. And only they, we're told, can survive in these fruitless lands because they live a marginal existence with their flocks and move on. And there was a terrible situation, uh, much heat, barrenness in the land forever. There was a blackness upon the children of Canaan that they were despised among all people. That's interesting. Again, another feature. Oh, yeah. uh, Aswad and Abiyad. uh The Arabs divide all people into the, all uh, societies in, into the Beit al Shaar uh, and uh, to the Beit al Uh to the bait al hajar You live in, in houses of stone or the houses of hair, that's goat's hair, the goat's hair tent. The two members of the human race living in the uh, Baita Shakar, that's the houses of goat's hair, uh, and the Baita of, uh, of the stone of Khmer. Uh, and uh, you're either Aswad or Abiyat. If you live out in nature, as the Indians do and so forth, then you get a swarthy dark complexion, which they call black, just black, then you're the black people. If you live in the houses and in the city on a delicate diet and keep out of the sun most of the time, then you're Abed, then you're white. So they're divided into white. And this is the same pattern you find in the Book of Mormon. You know, when they, when they take up the, when the Nephites take up the Lamanite way of life, and vice versa, they change their general complexion and their, their culture and all the rest. Well, this is a, an interesting insight it gives into the early beginnings. So I say there's a lot of recent new books that have come out on this very thing. The one I just mentioned. Uh, that one by Schutz is very good. It goes back to, begins with the Willemsdorf figure in 30,000 B.C. But this is the pattern. This is the pattern, pattern you find all through there. And then he sees the seven lands of Enoch's mission, which very interestingly have names very much like the names of Hobie villages, if you won't go into that either. Uh, There's a story there anyway. And then Enoch starts establishing the church among them. He starts baptizing them and organizing them. They begin to follow him. He calls upon them, and they follow him, and he becomes their leader. In the thirteenth verse. He led the people of God. They were attacked by their enemies. He couldn't stand them. They came again to battle against them, not the other way around. He spake the word of the Lord, and noticed the terrible times were in. The earth trembled, the mountains fled even according to his commands. The rivers of water were turned out of their course. And that's mentioned in a number of the ancient sources, the rivers of the water being turned out of their courses. And we mentioned this the last time, the roar of lions was heard out of the wilderness, and all nations feared greatly. So powerful was the word of Enoch, so great was the power of the language. Remember the two giants Oya and Hoya. Uh, they, uh, when the when the beasts roared, they were petrified and fell down with fear. And also, you notice plate tectonics are at work. The sea retreats and comes up, and all this volcanic stuff going along. Uh, there came up a land out of the depths of the sea. The sea, and we're told again in numbers of sources, especially well uh, the Greek and the uh, Slavonic sources, especially the old Slavonic sources that in, the, in Enoch's day, oh, it was a great tradition, this, the sea retreated, the sea retreated seven leagues, and then it came back again and drowned the land, uh, but it retreated and new lands began to appear, and it says, and uh, there came up a land out of the depths of the sea, and so great was the fear of the enemies of the people of God. They fled and stood afar off and went upon the land which came up out of the depth of the sea. Very interesting legend about the island of Aegea, which you see from Athens, which has the Enoch's cloud over it when the weather is bad and so forth. All sorts of stories here we might get hung up on. And the giants of the land, again, just studying giants, who were they? They stood afar off. We're told when these watchers came down and mingled with the daughters of men, what they begot were the giants. Well, there's mention of that in the Bible, too. It doesn't mention the waters, but the sons of the sons <laughs> of God and daughters of men, they produced uh, a race of giants, and there are such. Again, we won't go into that, but when you go down to, into uh, Montenegro, uh, every man is about seven feet tall. Uh, Christmere Joseph looked small down there, practically. That's where he went to to, uh, vo- to, to draft basketball players, because they're, they're all enormous people. And then you cross the border into Greece, and I walk down the street feeling very, very pleased with myself because I'm taller almost than anybody on the street. Now, between those, you see these people would call them uh, giants. Or when uh, Porus, Alexander the Great, fought a duel with Porus, the only, <laughs> the only way he could get at him was to get underneath his armor and, and uh, punch him in the tummy. Uh, but uh, Porus was about seven feet three, and Alexander was, was about four feet six or seven. He was very short, and Porus was very tall. <laughs> they had to do it, and Alexander won, but Alexander always won. But uh, you can see this idea of giants has that kind of reality. Giant is a relative thing after all. We don't know what we're talking about here, but they had forth giants. And all this bloodshed, the people fight themselves as well. Remember when, when nature is unstable and things become desperate, people start fighting each other. And this is what happens here. These great upheavals, total uproar, there have been such times, and then again in this the saints are gathered. In it's high time they were getting out of it. So they start pulling together. They start gathering together, blessed on the mountains and on the high places. Notice always that difference between the high and the low places. The Lord called His people Zion. I wonder what it meant then. Of course, Zion means adornment, beauty, perfection because they were of one heart and one mind, and dwelt in righteousness, and there was no poor among them. I've had students tell me that this, this absolutely proved that only the well-to-do were admitted to, Zion, uh, to uh, Enoch city of Zion, because there were no poor among them. Of course, if you were poor, they wouldn't let you in. Well, uh, that's how we can rationalize, as St. Uh, Augustine says. Oh, human interests. oh money. Um, what a powerful argument you are, he says. What powerful argument That's a person given great skill at argument? Nobody can, can out-argue money, he says. Well, uh, then a long passage of time. No, these things take time. After, when they talk about these long ages and so forth, we get all disturbed about millions of years when the geologists talk about it, some Latter-day Saints do. But we're not disturbed at all when we t- speak of people living 800, 900 years. And having children in their 700s and 800s and things like that. Uh, what's it talking about? These things. There's a there's a good rational explanation for these things. And as a matter of fact, the ages in the uh, in this literature are all quite different. They don't even the Septuagint, which is the oldest and best of the Hebrew text, gives quite different chronologies for Genesis and from what we get in the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text. Which one do you follow? Doesn't make much difference. Uh, chronologies never worried me. Uh, well, Satan takes over the earth now. Oh boy, we got to move. It's Abraham. Uh, and this is today. Uh, notice the twenty-fourth verse here. This is a marvelous passage, where he the chain, he looks, looks up, and the power of Satan was upon all the face of the earth. And Satan held this great chain, and it veiled the whole earth in darkness. This, this passage actually occurs in some of the other texts too. And he looked up and laughed, and his angels rejoiced. And uh, one passage says, and while he laughed, God wept, And, of course, later on, very soon, well, God weeps very soon here in the 28th verse. We just skip a verse. Notice in verse 26, Satan laughs, and in verse 28, God weeps. (coughs) And those are brought together in in one verse. It's a very striking thing. And uh, so this is like, uh, like 135 where it says, The time is not now, but is near at hand, when peace shall be taken away from the earth, and the devil have control of his own dominion. We're living in that kind of a time now. But they start the shuttle service going. The angels descend and they preach and they give a chance to everyone to hear the gospel and clear out while there's still time. And uh, the Holy Ghost, they preach, the Holy Ghost fell on many and they were caught up by the powers of heaven into Zion. Now something so that what is lost is only the residue of the people, as we're told in verse 22. Nobody gets drowned in the flood who didn't deserve to be drowned. Uh, that isn't because only Noah was righteous, but because all the rest had made a, made a break for it. Notice the 28th verse. Uh, and when it came to pass, God of heaven looked on the residue of the people, then he wept. And then how is it that the heavens can weep? Now, there's a brand new book out by Peter Kuhn called God's weeping and, and sorrowing in the rabbinical tradition, because uh, there was very little of it, actually. And uh, the idea that God weeps is uh, in, in the book of Enoch, in the old book, in, in the Jewish book of Enoch, where uh, It's in the uh, where God weeps, and Enoch asks him, why are you weeping? This is here. And he says, if you don't want to let me weep, I will go where you can't see me, and then I'll weep all I want, but it's none of your business why I'm weeping. Uh, If I choose to weep, he says, if I choose to weep, I will weep, but uh, who are you to ask, and uh, I'll go where I want. The point is that God is weeping, and Enoch just can't understand it. He's completely nonplussed. It has to do with the destruction of the temple, incidentally, in the Hebrew literature. When the temple was destroyed, God wept him. And then it was that Enoch asked him, they brought Enoch into the picture, because Enoch was the one who asked God why he wept, and that's what we have it here. And I can't comprehend. You, after, you've created millions of earths like this. What does this matter to you? Particles. Millions of earths like this couldn't begin the number of thy creations. Thy curtains are stretched out still, another thing. Why do you worry about this because they're all connected. And then, this marvelous passage here, Thou hast taken Zion to thine own bosom, they're safe now, from all thy creations. And that's very interesting, Zion is brought out of all creations. Uh, They all have their problems, they all have Zion. The whole system is pervasive everywhere. From all eternity to all eternity, and naught but peace, justice, and truth is the habitation of thy throne. Very interesting passage that one. And mercy shall go before thy face, and have no end. How is it thou canst weep? And then the Lord explains why he has very good reason for weeping here. And, he says, I gave them the three things they needed. In the day I created him, I gave him knowledge so that he wouldn't be stupid, he would know what the situation was. I gave him his agency so he could choose to do anything he wanted, he could choose if he wanted. But of course you can have knowledge and agency and still do the wrong thing because you don't have the wisdom, you don't have the understanding, you don't know everything. He gave them knowledge of good and evil. So I gave him commandments, I gave him specific orders as to what he should do. In one of the texts he says, I keep reporting to these on the board, which aren't on the board. He says, I said, this thing you should do, the the old Slavonic text, I told him, this you should do, and this you should not do. He says, but they are without affection, just like this, they are out of affection, they hate their own blood, son against father, father against son, and all against all, the whole human race is in complete uproar. And then the mingling of fire and water that goes with the flood is interesting. Notice the language that's used here, all along here. Uh, The fire of mine indignation is kindled. Well, fire and kindling are fire words, aren't they? (laughs) And in my hot displeasure, there's another one, I will send the floods upon them. My fierce anger is kindled against them. And we're often told that the, f- that the fire and the water came together. Remember, the heavens, the sulfurous descent and so forth. It could have been a giant meteorite or something like that. They all came together and every- everything broke loose at once. And it was a tremendous thing. Well, uh, then... Well, Noah shall get comfort, uh, and, of course, Enoch is completely overcome. He says, I will refuse to be comforted. Then the Lord shows him the plan of salvation. In the other text, it, they make more of the fact that uh, a prison have I prepared for them. They're to be saved until the time of the judgment, when they'll be judged, and then they'll be given a second chance. And then they'll be given, hear the gospel and be given a chance to repent, the preaching of the spirits in prison, which, as Peter tells us, remember, were disobedient at the time of Noah. These very ones, that's the temple workers for it, to take care of these people who rejected the gospel and were destroyed. So the patterns, they all fit into each other very nicely. Joseph Smith calling more of his shots here. Look at the end, he says, and be glad, and the end will be a sanctified and eternal state. But when and how will it be, says Enoch, and then the days of wickedness and vengeance. Three times, he says, these are days of wickedness and vengeance. Then he says, what will happen after that? Then he sees the world going bad again, and his heart is broken, he says, Oh, Lord, will you come again? Yes, he says, I'll come again in the days of wickedness and vengeance. And then he sees the Messiah come and the Son of Man lifted up on the cross and it's worse, all the creations of God mourned, the same thing all over again. And uh, the chains of darkness are there and they're kept in judgment till the great day. And Enoch wept again, this is for the time of Christ, and said, When will you come again? Enoch beheld the Son of Man as is up unto the prophet. And then this passage, thou hast given me a right to thy throne. In the 59th verse, this is the one thing that, professor, that, uh, that really knocked uh, Professor Black over. He said, this is it. This is the one thing he thought he'd discovered, that God gave Enoch a right to his throne, and here it is. When he saw this here, it really staggered him. Because um, th- Enoch is promised the throne. This is a very important thing. Enoch is called Metatron. Me- that's commonly interpreted today as meaning the one with the throne. Well, anyway, the third time he'll come again, he says, yes, I will come again in the last days the time of wickedness and vengeance, where we are today. That will bring us up to the, what is it, the 21st? Day 21st? Tomorrow is the first day of spring uh, in these days of wickedness and vengeance. We have to get on to uh, Abraham now, so we have to skip the marvelous story about Methuselah, who took honor to himself and brought calamity on the world. Again, this is a story which is only mentioned, and these things, the stories about Methuselah, the sons of God and the daughters of men here and Noah continuing Enoch's work, and Methuselah's boast. There is a great literature backing this up, but this goes way back. This isn't in this, this, isn't in this uh, apocalyptic stuff here. This goes back to the earliest Babylonian and Egyptian literature, especially the Babylonian. The story of Gilgamesh and Humbaba tells the very story that we have here of Enoch and, uh, well I say the Lamech. The Lamech scroll was discovered telling the same thing. See, Lamech was the father, well, too much, I'm sorry, we can't tell you. But we'll start with Abraham the next time.